Welcome to the Dear Christianity Podcast. I'm your host, Dale Westervelt, and this is the final episode of Season 1. In this episode, I read my Dear Christianity letter. We'll spend a handful of episodes in Season 2 unpacking the letter you're about to read. But without further ado, let's dive in. Dear Christianity, wake up! Nearly half of all professing Christians from 2000 are now gone. The numbers aren't just pie charts and bar graphs. Millions of persons have been oppressed or injured and have run for safety or freedom. They are now your casualties. You have a crisis on your hands that future history books will chronicle, pointing to this time as the swiftest, most significant shift in the shape of American religion. A growing pool of analysts report the gloomy trend, and like using a storm tracker, they forecast increasingly tragic numbers 30 and 40 years out. Some report the data and add commentary, such as pointing to the ones who left and how their tastes have moved beyond traditional values. They conclude that your followers must redouble their efforts to appeal more to the new generation. Others suggest that as long as you don't compromise any of the hard teachings of Jesus, while the shrinking numbers are regrettable, it is what it is. But I have a different view. I believe you're failing all generations. And this is plainly evident when we set your current state next to your central mission to love God and all other persons. If you were flourishing at this, it's reasonable to suppose you would have much better results. The main problem is the root of all the others. You have unknowingly abandoned the person and work of Christ. Not only have you not guided your followers to fix their hearts and minds on Jesus, but as a rule, you rarely mention him and what he did for your followers in your sermons. Also, you have reduced the Christian religion to a lifestyle framed by moral, social, and sometimes political rules. As an example, reports from many who walked away stamp you as anti-gay. To the extent that this is your unofficial stance, here's a helpful experiment. Jot down the biblical references you believe settle the matter of homosexuality. Roll up the list, tuck it into a thimble, and place it near the shoreline of the nearest ocean. Step back 10 paces, keeping your eyes on the list, and be sure to stay long enough to watch it drown in the ocean of verses about how we should treat all other persons. Let this be instructional. Additionally, without biblical or personal evidence, you march through life with the presumption that your followers' faithfulness to God's callings leads to their progressive moral improvement. You equate this notion with Christian maturity, despite the New Testament's explicit statement that if this were possible, Christ died needlessly. In fairness, moralism comes naturally to all persons everywhere, since the path between cause and effect is slick and fast in the human brain. Doing labor and getting paid is one of a zillion examples of this scheme. Yet the New Testament uses work, a cause, and wages, the effect, to illustrate that the Christian gospel works on a radically different paradigm. Believers have righteousness credited to them 
simply by trusting God rather than seeking to earn it through their obedience. It should liberate them to know that their righteousness is the cause and their obedience is the effect. Related to this, you have trained your people's eyes to see only the Bible's rules and not the gospel's promises of liberty, hope, and peace. No one can suggest the laws aren't in the text, but if you took to heart that your followers are no longer under the law but under grace, it would help them read the commands through the brighter and softer lens of the gospel. As a practical illustration, consider guilt. If Christianity is merely a lifestyle, only a scant list of responses is available for your followers when the Spirit provokes their conscience. They can either wallow without peace and confidence or gird themselves to try harder and be better. Neither of these are the point of the Spirit's prompting, nor are they constructive responses. God's loving kindness is conveyed through the Holy Spirit in order to draw your followers to come to him for mercy and renewal. Let them breathe in the clean air that billows from 1 John 2 and Romans 7. Help them want to run to Christ and make veritable snow angels in his mercy and his goodness. Be sure they know that if they must make one or 100 angels a day, the gospel and the Holy Spirit will renew them every time. Fortify their faith to reject the straw man argument that if they dare make grace too great, they will glide down a path of hellish living. Their faith affords them lavish benefits, such as union with Christ, freedom from sin, and the lively presence of the Spirit. Help them see all of this and watch them glow with light and life, and luscious fruit will fall from their branches. Too good to be true? It is exceedingly good, but I encourage you to resist the impulse to reject it because of its goodness. Concede that liberty of conscience is not just superior to guilt-driven slavery in theory. Follow Paul's encouragement to the Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Consider love, joy, peace, and kindness, fruits of the Spirit, and life-affirming traits. Compare these to the data that you are perceived as anti-gay, too political, narrow-minded, and unloving, not life-affirming traits. The disparity obviously reveals that you are not on the right path. If the fruits of the Spirit were growing on every branch, can you imagine your sanctuaries bulging rather than shrinking nearly by half? You and your gatherings would be irresistible. The gospel is the extravagant message that Jesus did a cosmic swap on Calvary's cross. He took all your sins in exchange for giving you his perfect righteousness. The benefits of the trade belong to you solely because of the gift of faith. The writers wonderfully present this gospel throughout the New Testament. Once you see it, you will see it on almost every page. Pray for the eyes to do so. Note that I am not addressing this letter to Christianity per se, but to your contemporary state and expression. I've loved your gospel for many decades, and if you were feeding on it, manifesting it, and giving it away generously, there would be no need for anything but an effusive thank you card. Also, I'm painting with a broom. Not rendered here are the needles in the haystack churches where grace and Christ's finished work are the focus of every gathering 
Urge your leaders to seek out these communities and emulate their steady diet of Christ, faith, joy, and freedom. This strategy alone will begin to turn the tide. Your best days can still be in front of you. If you will take these two suggestions, you can swing the pendulum back in your favor. First, return to your roots in the gospel of faith. Recognize that faith is not a teeny affirmation that Jesus is God's son, a preliminary nod so that your followers can move on to the real business of Christian living. The Bible says so much about faith because of its central importance to the church and the Christian gospel. Faith is a gift of God. Faith makes us pleasing to God. Faith grants us God's grace. Faith credits us with Christ's righteousness. Faith makes us children of God. Faith is how we receive the Holy Spirit. Faith allows us to be in God's presence. Faith will bring unity. Faith renders us guiltless. Faith grants us peace. Faith produces love for God and for others. Faith is an ethic for abundant life. Faith is the source of our assurance. Faith is how Christ dwells in our hearts. Faith animates our obedience. Faith is the tree where the fruits of the Spirit grow. Return to Christ and the gospel of faith. Pray the words of the man who presented his demon-possessed son to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Second, receive James's admonition to pray for wisdom, which is comprised of two vital ingredients, knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. Each of these have a filling out and clarifying effect on the other. As an example, Paul compares God's perfection with his own limitations and troubled conscience about his imperfect daily living. This wisdom causes him to fly to Christ for rescue and to give thanks to God. In closing, I commend you to try this prayer, much of which Paul prayed for the Christians in Ephesus. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. When we heard the gospel of our salvation and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We pray that God may give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know him better. We pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which he has called us, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen. Love. DearChristianity.net Thanks so much for stopping by. I'm Dale Westervelt. Please check us out at DearChristianity.net That's .net And feel free to subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on new episodes coming out and hope to see you soon.